Good morning. It's good to see you. And uh, those of you I can't see but hopefully can see me at home, it's good to have you with us as well. I just uh, would like it if we all just bowed for a time of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are here with us, wherever we are. We confess that so often we, we are uh, bothered and worried by, by so many other thoughts that we forget about your presence. Forget about the fact that you are constantly reaching towards us. And so this morning we reach towards you. We reach back uh, in gratitude for your love, for your acceptance. Lord, we, we reach from many different places. We, we think of the Nelsons who, uh, who reach towards you from a place of grief and loss. And, and really that goes for all of us who, who knew Brian. Uh, but this, uh, this terrible situation that causes us grief also causes us to think and reach and long for heaven. Build that longing stronger in our hearts today. Lord, we pray for all the many people. Each of us, uh, even in this moment, can list the names of people we know who are, are underemployed, who are struggling, uh, who the current situations have created a, men- a mental, emotional stress, a spiritual difficulty. We also pray for those who we've noticed a, a bit of an awakening, a questioning, a desire, a searching. Uh, and we pray, too, that you would meet that need and that if... If it would be your will, we would have the words and wisdom to speak into those situations. Lord, we pray for leadership everywhere. We pray for our church board. We pray for, for our provincial government. We pray for, we pray for the, uh, the governments around the world. Lord, in this moment, it doesn't matter on earth whether we agree with their policies or disagree. We pray that they would reach to you for wisdom, that somehow, some way, They would understand that they need the God of the universe, the creator of all, to guide them. Lord, we pray for um, those who are in isolation, uh, those who who struggle to come out in public during this time. We pray that you would give them comfort and meet them with your love and your kindness and your presence. Lord, we pray for, for our sister Grace as she's mourning the loss of her sister, uh, Judy, Lord, we, we, uh, it is so difficult with the uh, funeral restrictions, Lord. And so we pray that in unexpected new ways that we've never imagined, we would find the ability to comfort one another. And, uh, Lord, we've only named such a very few names, but there are many names of people, both the ones we know and the ones we don't, who are in need of you this morning. May they reach out to a church, to a Christian they know, May we all be ready to answer, to converse, to pray with, and to be your presence in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've decided, uh, as you already know, that this morning will be um, the last of this Jesus is the Answer series. Um, As I looked at current affairs, I could not possibly meet them all on a Sunday morning. And, and that's the very nature of current affairs, right? There's always another one. So we could preach on current affairs every Sunday for the rest of our life. And so I thought I would try to um, close this off with, with a point of view or a way of looking or being in the world that could give each of you wisdom for every current affair. Uh, you never know what conversation you're going to get into. You never know what questions might be asked. You never know what's going to come up in next week's news cycle. And uh, how are we as Christians to, to, uh, to have wisdom in these situations so we can truly speak uh, God's words into those places? I don't know if I'll achieve that goal, but that's my goal this morning. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can do that. And, and, and you'll, you'll probably understand by the end also why I'm jumping back into the books of the Bible, because I think that's uh, so important. And uh, you probably found a reading schedule on your seat. I'm, that's our tentative uh, uh, schedule if you want to read the books as I go through them. Uh, Luke and Acts will be out of chronological order because they're going to provide the story into which we place the other books. 
but uh, by chronological order, I mean the, the order in which they were written, uh, not the order in which they come up in your printed Bible. So um, that's there. It's going to be on our website. And given what we know about, about uh, things that happen, quite likely at some point we'll get behind or ahead on that schedule and then we'll adjust it. But that gives you an overview of, of where we're planning to be. Um, so this morning, I, wanna, I, wa- I wonder if any of you remember or still have a Rubik's Cube. Does anyone still have a Rubik's Cube? Uh, can anyone solve a Rubik's Cube? I shouldn't put my hand up, a few tentative hands. <laughs> you know, some of us remember when they came out, when, when every student in every school had a Rubik's Cube in their locker. And uh, for me, that was around junior high. It was the days of Big Hair and Loverboy and Duran Duran. And, and, uh, and uh, I remember a contest, a Rubik's Cubes contest, and it was down to three finalists. And there was three tables, a Rubik's Cube on each table. And the students came forward. The, the buzzer went off, and they picked up their cubes and quickly, frantically started trying to solve them. And you could see the person on one side had a strategy. If you were looking closely, if you were seated close enough to t- the table, you could see that, that this student was trying to get the four corners in the right place and then get, was going to fill in the insides. That was the strategy there. And then you could see on the other side that the person there was trying to go layer by layer. Start with one layer, get that all right, and then go down the layers and, f- and finish the cube. And none of them were experts, so it was going to take a while, we could all tell. And uh, the person in the middle table didn't seem to have a strategy at all, just kind of randomly flipping the cube. And after a little bit, the person in the middle turned the cube so the corner was out, put his thumb under it, and flipped the, co- the, the block right out, and all the box just fell on the table. And then he put it together in order. And you know, they could find nowhere in the rule book that that wasn't allowed. No one had anticipated that move, and so they would never wrote it in that it wasn't allowed. And uh, so I, I don't remember who got the trophy, but we all got a good laugh. And um, the, the point that I'm making with that and that we're going to come back to throughout this next few minutes is there's always a third way. There's always another way that no one anticipated. And we come into conflictual situations, um, current affairs, As Christians, there's always a third way. And we need to search for that and look for that. Um, There's always constantly changing issues. And I know it's a a joke and it's an oversimplification, but there there is a truth to the fact that as people of faith, Jesus is always the answer. Um... I know that's oversimplified and things are more complicated than that, but it's a good place to start as we enter into things, to... uh, to, to look for, as, as even just Greg gave witness to uh, this morning on a phone call. There's another way. Not the decisions I would make, but what would Jesus make of this situation? And so, um, Jesus is the answer to current affairs. Um, I want to tell you three stories that might help us define and understand a perspective that would give us a third way a different way of responding than the options that are normally given to us in any and every uh, situation. I mean, by their very nature, current affairs are conflictless because uh, they wouldn't reach to that level. If everything's harmonious, if everything's going good, we never hear about it. But current affairs are always when there's a problem, when when someone's arguing with someone else, someone who has a voice in our culture or in in our society. And so I want to tell three stories. And, uh, and these three stories, I think, will, will lay out for us a perspective as Christians that we should have on the world that will guide us in these situations. So the first story is about a chosen nation. Most of you know the story well and could tell it. Uh, if we go with a very, a very broad brush without getting into the details, we know that God chose one person, Abraham, and said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed out of your descendants. And, um, <clears throat> and the story, I mean, there's many stories that go in there that give us the foundations of faith. And, and we know that, that at, at a certain point in time, that family had grown into a nation of slaves in Egypt. 
And God uh, came into that situation through his servant Moses, and he saved them, he delivered them, he redeemed them. And he, he took them through the Red Sea as though through a crucible into the wilderness. And in that place, he defined for them what he was doing, why he was doing it, and what their place as a people was in that situation. I'll read a little bit of that uh, from Le- Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22. You must keep all my decrees and regulations by putting them into practice. Otherwise, the land to which I am bringing you as your new home will vomit you out. Do not live according to the customs of the people I am driving out before you. It is because they do these shameful things that I, am, that I detest them. But I have promised you, you will possess their land because I will give it to you as your possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who, set, who has set you apart from all the other people. You must therefore make a distinction between ceremonially clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. You must not defile yourselves by eating any unclean animal or bird or creature that scurries along the ground. I have identified them as being unclean to you. Now, If you can imagine living in a society with these rules, and you know there's many others around you, that there might be current affairs. Well, um, if, if I go to another person's house, do I have to ask them every time if they butchered the right bird or the wrong one? Do I have to... There would have been uh, stuff like that. And today we look back at those laws and we have all these things. Well, scientifically, these ones carry more disease. We have all these explanations. But what is God's reason for this? The next verse tells us in no uncertain terms. You must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from other people to be my very own. That's why. It's not for any other reason. The reason that God asked his people and commanded his people to follow these obscure and strange rules is so that they would stand out from the other nations, so that they would stand out from the other people as being different, as being set apart as possessions of God. These people belong to me, God says. They have my stamp upon them. They're my possessions. They belong to me. And we know the reason for that. It goes back to Abraham, so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that people will look upon a nation that has no king, that has no politics, only God is their king. And they love one another and they live together in harmony and they're set apart from the other people and all the other nations and peoples around the world behave differently. But my people belong to me. They are mine, God says. Now it wasn't long and the people set apart for God just didn't follow those holiness rules. And they demanded a king, and they went and and made alliances with other powers instead of just with God. And only for very brief periods of time throughout their history did they, in, in even a small way, bring that shining light of God's possession upon the earth that the people of the earth could see. And as, as we just read, God did vomit them out of the land. What a good way to talk about exile. That's how God felt about it when he sent them into Babylon and spread them around the world. Revulsion. I chose you as mine, and you rejected me again and again and again. Read your Old Testament. How many times did he forgive them? How many times did he overlook their disobedience and bless them anyways? Again and again and again. For generations and generations. But finally, he vomited them out. Not out of cruelty, but to remind them of the promise. To make them hungry to come back to the blessing. We read about this same, um, this same situation in Deuteronomy 14. 
Since you are the people of God, your God, never cut yourselves or shave your hair above your foreheads in mourning for the dead. What an obscure rule. I have no idea. You've been set apart as holy to the Lord, your God, and he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. Is that not what we all desire? Is that not why our marriages go bad? And our relationships with our children? We have this deep-seated soul desire to be someone's special treasure. And no one on earth can give us that at the level that God has put the desire in our hearts. Because He has chosen His people as His own special treasure. That's why they weren't supposed to shave their heads beyond their foreheads when they were mourning. To set them apart, to show the nations that they're different. They're not doing these ritualistic things about the dead because they trust in God that He has chosen them and they are special and even in death He will not reject them. God's own special people. To bring His character and His presence and the knowledge of God to the earth through them through their lives together the purpose was to make god visible to be the kingdom of god that reigns supreme and for all eternity in heaven to bring that kingdom to earth and live it out among people so that the nations would desire god it's a high calling but it's a beautiful promise that they had Cherished, another translation says, cherished personal treasure of God. Sounds so beautiful, so wonderful to have that designation. So let's go to story number two. We move forward to the, to the New Testament. And uh, I'm going to just start with the scriptures and then talk about it a bit. Galatians chapter 3. Here we have the Apostle Paul describing this situation, this story to us. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. So he's telling us the story. This is the situation on earth. All people are prisoners to sin. But we receive freedom the promise of God by believing in Jesus Christ. Now it's not by obeying the Old Testament law as it was in the first story, but this is a little bit different. This is a development. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under the guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, the putting on of new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ Jesus, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. What was God's promise to Abraham? Through you, all the nations will be blessed. Through you and your descendants, the people of earth will come to know God. This promise, if we are people of faith, is ours. God doesn't calculate the genealogy of Abraham through physical genes. He counts it through the, through the genes of faith in God. And anyone who has this faith, Paul is telling us here in Galatians, has the promise. Abraham is your grandfather. Your true grandfather. He uses the term here, changed your clothes. Now, 
Maybe you've thought about that before. Well, if my clothes get dirty, like with sin in my life, then with Jesus forgives me and I put on clean clothes. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. This is different. This is like Star Trek. You've got a uniform from another universe. You've got a different clothes. You've got a different identity. Take off your Jewish clothes. Take off your Roman clothes. Take off your, your, your African clothes. Put on the clothes of Jesus. You're a citizen of heaven. In this country, there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction based on earthly genetics and cultures. There is no slave or free. There's no distinction between classes of society. There's no male or female. There's no distinction between sexuality and these kinds of things. Put on these clothes. You're citizens now of a different place. Dress the part. Peter, uh, the disciple of Jesus Christ, describes this same situation in, in, uh, in this way. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk. Just pause there for a second. What do I crave? Here's my confession. Just talk to Colleen, she knows. I go on YouTube and crave all kinds of knowledge that comes from people on earth. And eat it up and seek to become wise. And Peter says, crave spiritual milk. Long for it. Seek it out. Like a baby that won't stop crying until you receive it. Crave spiritual milk. So that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for nourishment. Blessed are those who mourn. Cry out for nourishment now that you have a taste of the Lord's kindness. What am I crying out for? What are you crying out for? You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scripture says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him. But those who reject him, the stone the builders rejected, has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Do you think anyone has stumbled this past year? I don't know anyone who hasn't. From the highest government officials to the poorest, uninfluential people. I don't know anyone who hasn't stumbled. How do we avoid that? How do we come to a situation in our lives where the cornerstone that is Jesus causes us to reach great heights rather than to stumble? But you are not like that. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Exactly the same as it was in the Old Testament. If Jesus Christ is your cornerstone, you are his special possession. Not just you, but you plural. We are his special possession. Set apart to carry out the promises that was given to Abraham to bring a blessing to the whole world and to show God's reality on this earth. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And what is the purpose? 
It's such a simple phrase, but so deep with meaning. As a result, you can show the goodness of God to others. That's it. Simple. But it encompasses everything. Every moment of our life, every thought in our brains, every word that comes out of our mouth, every attitude we have or don't have, because of these things that you are in Jesus Christ, you, plural, the church, can show others the goodness of God. That's why he did it. That's why he left heaven and came to earth and lived among us to show us how to live in God's glory on this earth and then died, took our sins upon him and rose from the dead to sit at the right hand of God so that you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you, had, you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your souls. Here's my translation. Dear friends, I warn you, as people who are just dwelling in tents here on earth for a while before you go home, to keep away from current affairs that wage war among you on this earth. They're not your concern. You're not a citizen here. You're a temporary alien, a foreigner, a resident. You don't even have your papers for this earth. You've turned them in. You've burned them. You've got your papers for the eternal kingdom. That's where your attention should be. That's where you should be seeking spiritual, uh, spiritual milk. And the purpose, the reason, is so that you can show the goodness of God, the goodness of the kingdom you've joined to the people who have not yet joined. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even as they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. What are we called to be? I read this, and it seems to me that I fall far short of the bar. Far short of the bar. But let's move on to the third story and... Oh, missing slides here. Move on to the third story. This one's from history. I thought, okay, what does this mean? What does it look like? I think we kind of, most of you already understood most of that or all of it in a theological sense. But what does it look like on earth for this to happen? And so I'm going to go to a historical story, a completely different situation than our current affairs. And maybe by doing that, we can get some insight onto how we might live in our time. Now, there was a time uh, in the second century when cultural situations and the issues of the day were very, very different from ours. But there was trouble. There was current affairs. There was conflict. The talk of the town, the talk of the Roman Empire, the thing that people were trying to solve, or at least one of the things is, what are we going to do with the Christians? We've never seen this kind of thing in society before. Now it's like the second century, so like 130, 150 years since Jesus was around. The Christians have spread throughout the empire. Their presence is known, becoming uh, obvious in towns and cities around. And people are like, what are we going to do with these, these, this new thing? How do we treat it? And uh, it, there's, a, there's a man, a, a Christian uh, leader in Carthage in Africa, whose name was Tertullian. And he writes about this, about what was happening around him. And he writes about a new insult that's come across and now is being wagered against the Christians, the, the church. The people and the officials are calling the Christians a third race. 
Now, that doesn't mean what to, to them what it means to us. The word race had a very, very different meaning in their culture than it does in ours. So I'm going to take the time to explain it, because I think by looking at their situation and how different it was from ours, but how they solved it, the way they flipped the corner out of the Rubik's Cube, will help us. So race meant something different. In the ancient world of the second century, there was only two races and it had nothing to do with skin color. I was going to put up a map, but I forgot. So just imagine, you all know what the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire looks like. You have Africa on the south side of the Mediterranean, you have Palestine, and then the Arab nations off to that side. Then you have a little bit of Asia, and, and, and getting into Europe, and then Italy, and then Spain, and the Roman Empire went all the way up to Great Britain. And throughout this entire area, there was constant trade and commerce, and particularly with the army. The Romans constantly took people from one place and joined them up with people from all the other places to serve together in the army. It was a unity strategy. So almost every person either did themselves or knew someone in their family who had been in the army and had served with people with red hair and freckles from Great Britain and served in the same army with people from Africa with black skin and curly hair and had served in the same army with people with long noses and, and copper complexion from other places. It was a mix. Now, true, in that world, 90, 95, 99% of people stayed in the town they were born in. But this mixing of people was constant and common. They didn't see color of skin as a marker of race. They saw it differently. In that world, there was I'll, I'll give you two distinctions that were, that were common. The first one you know, the second one you might not. If you were a Jew in the first and second century, you defined yourself as someone who was circumcised and obeyed the law of Moses. Ate kosher food, you know, the whole thing. It didn't matter if you had black skin or red hair and freckles. If you were circumcised, had gone through the purification rituals, and followed the law, you were a Jew. That's how it was defined. That was your race. Everyone else was what? That's right, a Gentile. There's only two. This world was dichotomy. There was only two, Jew or Gentile. Now, if you were a Roman, there was a different dichotomy. The, if you were a Roman, you defined it this way. If you spoke Italian without an accent, dressed according to the Roman customs, obeyed the Roman laws, and, uh, and acknowledged Caesar as your king, you were a Roman. Didn't matter where you came from, what color your skin cut was, what kind of hair you were, you were a Roman. Everyone else was a different race. They were barbarians. Barbarian comes to the word Babel, which means the Romans would not even attempt to, to learn the other languages. They thought all the people who spoke other languages or even accents from other languages, they were just uncouth, uncivilized, just couldn't even have proper brains to function in the world. You were either Roman or barbarian. Those were the only two options, and they had nothing to do with skin color. But then along came the Christians. They were ethical like Jews, but carefully observed the laws of Rome. So were they Jew or Gentile? They didn't fit. They spoke Italian. They blended into society very well in all, in all tents and purposes. But like the barbarians, they would not bow to Caesar. They didn't fit. They couldn't tell were they Roman or barbarian. Were they Jew or Gentile? They didn't fit. And so they brought out the insult, they're a third race. That means they're, they're not even people. The barbarians are people because we know they can become Roman. The Gentiles are people because we know they can become Jew. But this is a third category that doesn't even fit into those things. Okay, so that was a, that was a huge insult. How did they solve it? We've, we find out in a letter that obviously had wide circulation in the ancient world because it's well-preserved. There's copies of it. It was obviously used by Christians and non-Christians to try to understand this situation. And it's the letter to Doignitus. Does anyone know how to say that? Maybe we should just say the letter to Doug. Would that be okay, Doug? <laughs> we can say that name. The letter to Doug. So this unknown author wrote this letter to a man named Doignitus, 
And, uh, and he is explaining this third race thing. And here's what he does as a Christian apologist, a defender of the Christian faith. He takes the insult, what was meant as an insult, and puts it on as new clothes, as a badge of honor, as a badge of citizenship in a different place that doesn't fit the categories of earth. Now, I came across this letter about two years ago, and I've read it in translation several times. It's fascinating. But he refers to the Christians with pride as a third race. That's right. That's right, Romans. That, that's right, barbarians. That right, that's right, Jews. That's right, Gentiles. We don't fit your categories. We're something else. We're citizens of heaven, and we're here on earth in that capacity. Here's what he Here's what he says about Christians. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share all things with others, and in, and, but yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They're, they marry as do others, They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the the same time surpass those laws in their lives. They love all. And are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. Undergoing punishment, they rejoice because they are brought to life. A third way. Flipping the corner out of the Rubik's Cube. How to live in this world with various and changing current affairs. We take our orders from a different king. Let me try and draw this. Words are inadequate. I haven't tried this before, so let's hope it works to draw on my little screen. Okay, not quite a circle, but there's the earth and all the people on the earth. Now here's what we know about the earth. We know this well. The earth is constantly divided into little blocks and segments and kingdoms and opinions. And every one of these different uh, categorizations or borders on the earth has someone or some ones who are vying to be king. Get to make the rules, get to tell us how to live, have a bunch of followers. Everyone, every place, everywhere, someone's trying to be king. Now, if we, if we look at that from the geopolitical context, we know that well. There's countries, they have borders, sometimes they change with wars or treaties, and uh, sometimes some of them, are, the king is a dictator, some of them... He's, he's uh, elected through dem- democratic means. Some, I mean, there's all kinds of different arrangements. Some of them are hereditary kings, uh, more of that in the past than now. But there's all kinds of different arrangements. But in every geopolitical region on the earth, someone is trying to be king. And some people are gladly following that king, and some people are opposing that ruling order. Everywhere you look. Now, that's geopolitically, but we can think about the same thing. We can think about the earth in different ways, too. We can think about it in terms of philosophy or attitude towards life. 
So some are saying uh, we, should, we should have a homogeneous ethic, and some are saying everyone can do whatever they want, and some are saying we should have more authoritarian, and some are saying we should have more freedom, and some are saying we should have this kind of economy, and some are saying we should have that kind of economy, and some are saying we should have these ethics, and others are arguing that we should have those ethics, and we could go on in every, every different thing in the world, but it's always dichotomies, right? It's this or that, and are you on my team or on that team, and you're my enemy if you're on that team, and you're my friend if you're on this team. And this comes all the way down to our churches and our families. And we have arguments about who should lead. Should it be the Pope or should it be a different kind of church government? Can women lead or can't they? Can, can this or that? Or how about if you can only lead a church if you've had a seminary education? Oh no, seminary education corrupts your mind. You should only be able to lead a church. We go on and on and on. And we have these little kingdoms and these little factions and we try, we, try to, uh, we try to get our way and we try to convince others and we go around and around and around. And then we have, uh, we have a lifelong dispute in our, in our home and our family with our brother or our sister about who's the best at getting mom and dad to do what we want. And it fit, filters right into our adulthood and we haven't talked to our our biological brother for the last 50 years because we can't get over this. And some families, it just simmers just below the surface between husband and wife. There's a tension. Who gets to make the decision? Some kids say it's mom. Some kids say it's dad. And they fight in the complaint, but it never really reaches the surface. In other families, it comes right in the open in violence and prison sentences. And the world goes around and around and around. And there's sin everywhere and darkness everywhere and discord. It's like in the days of Noah and we wonder why there's not a flood. But that's not all there is. That's not all there is. The Bible shows us that there's more. There is another place, another reality. Sometimes we think of it as heaven and that's accurate, that's appropriate. It's a spiritual realm. It's a place where there is only one king. And that king is the creator of all things. Now it's a deception to think it's only in heaven because God's presence encircles the earth and the universe and everything in it. And we read in our Bibles and we have in our own experience that God many times and frequently enters this terrible mess and makes his will known, speaks to people provides a way, seeks to forgive and love. But in heaven, there is perfect eternal love. There is never discord. There is only unity. Because there is only one king. And he is a good king who rules with love and generosity. The the, the generosity has no bottom. Here, Here, so much of the fighting goes on because we come from a position of scarcity. There's not enough love to go around. So you've got to negotiate it out of mom and out of dad and out of your brothers and sisters and the negotiations go bad and then there's only hate. There's not enough land to go around so you have to fight over it. There's not enough resources. There's not enough money in the bank. There's not enough jobs. There's not. We go on and on and on out of an attitude of scarcity. But in heaven, there is only generosity because there is no end to the resources. There's no bottom to what can be given. And it's beautiful. And it's harmonious. And the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. But God doesn't like this situation. And so he gets off his throne. And he comes in one of his three persons to earth. It's Jesus Christ. And he lives among this turmoil this constant conflict of current affairs. He lives a different way. He lives a way of love. He lives a way of generosity. He lives a way of healing in life. He doesn't get sidetracked. He seeks only to do. The, The scriptures tell us that Jesus does only what the Father tells him. Never anything else. And his will and his generosity flows only back to the Father. 
And the turmoil on earth could not stand it because it showed them up for frauds. It showed them up. They thought they were good. They thought they could reach heaven. And when they looked at Jesus, they knew they couldn't. So they killed him. But he had no guilt. He had no sin. And he took upon himself our sin. And he said to all this blackness, you can be forgiven if you say Jesus is Lord. He rose from the dead, proving the power of the resurrection over all of this evil. He returned to heaven to sit at the right hand of God as the ruler and king of his kingdom. And he sent the Holy Spirit to come to earth and to choose a special people, a church, a royal priesthood, a company of living stones built into a temple that brings God's presence to earth. And we are to be the ones who show his goodness and display on earth a third way, a way of love, a way that is not distracted and torn into and taken into all these conflicts. We only have one king. We don't choose sides. But we, we bring it in, don't we? Someone says, but you couldn't be a Christian if you voted for that guy. But you couldn't be a Christian unless you thought increased economy was more important than environment. But you couldn't be a Christian if you read a Bible that was in that translation. But you couldn't be a Christian if you listen to those songs and pretty soon you can't tell the difference and the love of God is not shown on earth and the people perish but God continues to shed his love God continues to share his love and his spirit in order that we would be his special special possessions on earth to show his love. So how does this affect current affairs? Which one should we choose? We could choose so many. Some people say that you should put a black square on your Facebook page. Other people say, no, the organization behind that is communist. And other people say, it only shows love if you do it. And we argue and we complain and we get on other, each other's backs. And what this third way says is the bar's too low. It's not about Facebook. The only thing that matters, the only thing that you should be concerned about is how do I love that person with the love of God? How do I show forgiveness? How do I extend grace? I don't care if that person said me to do this or that in order to current affairs, but they showed up here in our church. Would they know the love of God? And somebody says, you can't be a Christian if you vote for that crook. And another person says, you can't be a Christian if you support the policies of this other person. And we fight and we bicker within the church and it looks no different than the world. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter who you vote for or whether you vote. If Justin Trudeau or O'Toole walked into your church, would they know the love of God is among you? If you met them on the street, would you have the words of life for them? It regards, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote and have opinions, but that's way down here. We are citizens of a kingdom and have a king who is not involved. Got the wrong color. We are citizens of a king and a kingdom who is not involved in these things. His concerns are eternal. Every political party, every philosophical opinion, every ethical idea will be shaken and will fall. And only the eternal things that are built on the love of God will remain. 
Those are the clothes we wear. Those are the things we go after. And in the church, we we argue about things. We say, who should lead us? Some say the only legitimate leader for those who claim Jesus is the Pope in Rome. Some say only men can lead. Some say only people with degrees can lead. Some say only women can lead. And we bicker and we complain and we fight. And here's my contention to you. Not one of those people can lead us to where we need to go. I can't. It's like as if we were at an Olympic competition and we were at the pole vaulting. You know what pole vaulting is? Have you watched them soar through the air? Okay, so one competitor comes along and they said, what's your training been? Oh, I've never trained. Okay, well, have your go. So he takes a pillow and a blanket and he walks over to the mat and he lies down and goes to sleep. They're like, well, what, what are you doing? He says, well, well the, I've watched this thing. What we're supposed to do is go from here to the mat. I did it. But 20 feet above you is where the bar is. It's going to take some effort. You're going to have to build some muscles and some balance. And you can't do it without that pole, which is the Holy Spirit that lifts you into those heights. No human can lead us to where we need to be. It doesn't matter what we have. It doesn't matter all these things we argue about and complain about and get on each other's backs about. That bar is too low. Only Jesus can lead us there. There is to be no other authority. Ephesians says, submit to one another, every one of you, man, woman, child, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, Roman, barbarian, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's the one that can take us there, and only by the power of his Holy Spirit. What he has called us to is only possible if heaven visits earth in the church. It's not possible any other way. We need to be on our knees in mourning and tears until we say, Holy Spirit, we will do nothing until you show us. Do you remember the Apostle Paul when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? Jesus told him, on that day, I'm sending to you the Gentiles. It was at least five years later before he went. And how did he know to go? He was in prayer and mourning with a group of believers. And the Holy Spirit said, now it's time. He didn't go to Peter in Jerusalem to ask when he should go. He didn't go to some church council to ask when he should go and what he should do. He waited and prayed until the Holy Spirit led. He looked to Jesus on the throne as his only king, his only leader. And if we all do that, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, will bring us unity. We will be on the same page if we're listening to the same king. But we set up these other kingdoms. And we say, but pastor, stop going through the boring books of the Bible one after another and give us a marriage ceremony. I mean, not ceremony, seminar. We want to have a better marriage. And I say to you, did Jesus do all of that so your marriage could be a little bit better than it was last year? That bar's too low. That bar's way too low. When asked about marriage, Jesus said, What are you talking about? There will be no giving and taking in marriage in my kingdom. Seek first my kingdom and these things will be given to you. And we focus on who should do what in the home and we we think, oh, you know, but guess what? We all know it. We know it. The non-believer down the street has a better marriage than you do and he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. You say, why, God? That doesn't seem fair. Yeah, because that's not what God's doing. Remember in the Old Testament, God wanted to show his love on the earth? And he gave a man, an unfaithful prostitute for a wife, and she never reformed her ways. And God's message to him was, I'm not going to improve your marriage. I gave you that marriage so that my love could be shown on the earth. Love her, forgive her, take her back again and again and again. My prayer shouldn't be, how can I have a better marriage? My prayer should be, how can I love my wife no matter what she does and who she is? With the love of God that can only come through the Holy Spirit. If I do anything else, I'm like the guy with the pillow and the the blanket on the mat at the pole vaulting. 
didn't realize that's not what you were called to do. It's higher. It's better. It's eternal. It's solid. There's no sand in this kingdom. Only rock. Do the people see God when they look at the church? Or do they see the same thing that can easily be explained by the powers on earth? We're too tied up in the conflicts between kingdoms on this earth. Between factions and influencers and and we get judgmental towards one another if we have it doesn't matter what your opinions are on current affairs. Do you seek the spiritual milk of heaven? And do you seek to act only as the Holy Spirit guides you in life, in the love and generosity and goodness of God? So that you be not, not so that, but because you are already his special chosen possession. You don't need to impress anybody. You don't need the the love of anybody on earth. You don't need the approval of anybody on the earth. We are God's special chosen possession from now to all eternity. What more could we want? What more could we need? And we, we argue with each other over whether this therapy or that therapy will get us out of our depression. How is there depression in heaven? It's because we have not allowed heaven to come to earth as God has promised to do through his Holy Spirit among those who call him Lord. Who is our king? Who do we serve? Do we know anything of these realities? I don't say these things as a condemnation. I've read my Old Testament. I know how hard it is to be the people of God and how infrequently God's people actually achieve that goal. I'm not condemning you in any way. I'm just saying, let us put our eyes to a higher goal. Let us seek a reality that we know nothing of, that not a one of us can guide us to. Let us say to Jesus, you are our leader. Jesus is Lord. That's what that means. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come on earth among us right now as it is in heaven. So that we might fulfill the vision, the promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all nations and show the world the goodness and love of God. What else can we do? What better thing to devote a life to? May we be so enthralled and in love with his word. That's why I'm moving back to going through the books of the Bible. I don't care if you like it or not. May we be so enthralled with his word. May we read it forwards and backwards until we know it so well that when we get into a conversation, the very words of life flow from our tongues like a river from the throne of God that brings life and healing and blessing into this world. May we ignore the voices of conflict and do I pick this side or this team or or do I think that? And let us dwell in God's presence and know his eternal word that transcends current affairs. So that when someone asks us a question about what's going on on earth that we may have never thought about, we can speak the words of life because we know them. We've dwelt in them. We've, We've sucked on the milk of heaven. I put on Facebook. Many of you looked at it. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed. I like the translation that says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So the only unshakable things will remain. 
Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. Don't take my word for it. I'm going to read to you from God's word everything that I've just tried to describe. Ephesians chapter 1. How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the Father, our Master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the highest places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt into his family, decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we are free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, providing for everything we could possibly need. Letting us in on his plans, he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Longing before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, or sorry, long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, He had his eye on us. He had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose, he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed it, this message of your salvation. It's in Christ that you found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment on what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything God planned for us. A praising and glorious life. That's why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master's Jesus and your outpouring of love for all the Christians, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do not, but I do more than thank. I ask. I asked the I asked God of our Master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing Him personally, your eyes focused and clear, so that you can see exactly what He is calling you to do, grasping the immensity of all His glorious way of life. He has for us Christians. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ, our King. God raised him from the dead and set him on a throne in heaven. In charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, No name and no power is exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. He has the final word in everything. At the center of it all, this. Do you hear that? All this wonder we've just described. At the center, the kingpin, the main thing. At the center of all this. Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. 
The world is peripheral to the church. That bears repeating. This is the third way. This is how you flip the corner out of the Rubik's Cube. This is how you fly over the high bar. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. This is what we've been given. This is what we're called to. Through the church, he will fill everything with his presence. May it begin here among us today. Let us pray. Lord, the things we have tried to think about are beyond our comprehension. Your word says that it's a great mystery that is being revealed, not fully revealed yet. We cannot completely comprehend it, but it is a mystery that is presently being revealed among your people, the church. Lord, I confess that I and we have followed after many other authorities, sought wisdom in many other places. Lord, I ask that you would give us the deep and abiding desire to know you and to know you crucified and to know you risen and sitting at the right hand. That these things would not just be ideas that we believe philosophically as a ticket to heaven, but that our confidence in our citizenship with you would be so strong that all other factions on earth would dim by comparison. That we would wear with honor and pride a badge that says, I don't belong to this or that party or this or that argument. I seek only my commander, Jesus. He is wise. He knows all things. And he is bringing all things to their fulfillment and completion in his love and grace and mercy. His way is not the way of fighting and conflict and winning battles. His is the way of submission and crucifixion and suffering and sacrifice. And so often it does not look to us like that's a winning way. But for the resurrection, it wouldn't make any sense. But you've shown us the way to victory. You've shown us the way to new life through your life. If we live the way you live. The power of your resurrection. The presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we seek for things. We seek to be people that you have called us to be, which we have no power within ourselves to achieve. And so we bow before you and ask, give us the hearts that can receive your spirit. Give us the minds that can know and diligently study and understand your word. And give us the love that can transcend our differences so that when the world looks upon your church, they will have no explanation other than God is here. We have no ability to achieve these things. But you have all strength and power and glory and ability to do all things. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.